0: So I'm inclined to go ahead and start um, rather than prolong the anxiousness. So I want to thank you um, for accepting the invitation to our first Veterans Learning Community uh, Undergraduate Research Symposium. I'm Susan Hansen. Uh, the Veterans Learning Community, or VLC as we call it, is a joint initiative of the Arts and Humanities, the Center for Folklore Studies, the Mershon Center for International Security Studies and the Department of Comparative Studies. The Institute for Collaborative Research in Public Humanities provides additional support, and I just want to call your attention today to uh, Rick Herman, who's the director of the Mershon Center, and Dorothy Noyes, who's the director of the Folklore Center. Um, we appreciate their support. This afternoon's program marks the culmination of a year-long effort to begin exploring ways to turn these and other students' extraordinary experiences and military know-how into knowledge so that we might learn from them as they learn from us. My goal in the classroom this quarter and last has been to enable and maintain a productive balance. I don't mind telling you that some days it was a tug of war, no pun intended, with me pulling the students to places they didn't always want to visit, asking them to read texts that didn't seem relevant through lenses that often challenged their experiential sensibilities. Other days, the struggle involved letting them pull the discussion to a different direction, often to places that civilians and, dare I add, CEOs rarely go. Today is your opportunity to get a glimpse at some of the places we took each other through these students' works in progress. Unlike the classrooms themselves, today is not for veterans only. The presenters will introduce themselves, but I'd like to map the terrain, provide a little context. The coursework started with Comparative Studies 308, Experiences of War, a course that meets a GEC literature requirement. The reading list was extensive. We read fiction and nonfiction, poetry and short stories, plus several novels, memoirs, diaries, and films. The aim was to introduce the students to some of the ways authors and artists represent their own and others' experiences. The genres, themes, points of views, as well as ways of reading and interpreting works of literary art. Students were also required to begin developing a research project related to the theme of the class. The literature course was followed by Comparative Studies 367, a GEC second writing course, where we concentrated on research so that the students might pick up where they left off the previous quarter. The aim of the course was to introduce students to some of the ways that scholars present and represent their research and analyses the various genres, conventions, methodologies, and points of view, as well as ways of reading and responding to works of scholarship. The list of writing assignments was extensive. The topics of, resulting, the, topics of the resulting research papers are of the students' own choosing. Each work in progress is based on original research that draws on the students' own experiences ideas, concerns, questions, and insights. The only issue, and this is a small I issue, not an uppercase one, is that the students were not so easily convinced that their research is actually relevant. It is, of course. um, My hope for today is that your comments and questions will eliminate their lingering doubts. The presentations are relatively brief to allow time for each after each for brief comments and questions. We anticipate having time at the end for a wider conversation as well about the issues and opportunities. So, on that note, we'll start with Matt. Thank you.
1: Uh, my name is Matthew Austeran, and my presentation is or my project is called A War About a War analysis of PBS Frontline's feature documentary, Bush's War. I turned 21 on April 13, 2003, just three weeks into the 2003 invasion of Iraq by United States Armed Forces. At that time, I was a specialist in a signal company in the United States Army's 4th Infantry Division. I woke up outdoors on my 21st birthday lying on an olive drap green cot in a woodland camouflage-colored sleeping bag with sand in and on Every, or, every material, belonging, and body part that I had in my possession. I was in northern Kuwait at what was known at the time as Camp New York, one of several staging areas used by U.S. and other coalition forces preparing to attack north into Iraq. Why was I here? At the time, I would have answered that question like many soldiers, that I was here because Saddam had weapons of mass destruction and because President Bush and Congress had authorized U.S. armed forces to find those weapons, depose Saddam, and his regime, and replace his government with a more democratic one. Now, in hindsight, we are fairly certain about several things that we did not know back then. No weapons of mass destruction have been found in Iraq. The looting, the Sunni insurgency, and sectarian violence between Sunni and Shia neighbors have all proven difficult, if not impossible at times. Now, in military leadership circles, there is a common notion that even the best plan goes right out the window as soon as the first soldier steps off or as soon as the first bullet is fired. However, even in an ongoing military engagement, especially seven years in, we have an opportunity to go back and look at what exactly happened to bring us to where we are now in a conflict. What decisions were made? Who made them? And what were the results? The PBS series Frontline attempts to answer these questions in a special entitled Bush's War, The purpose of my research project is to pull apart various aspects of Bush's War, from the filmmaking techniques used by frontline producers to the film's method of presenting and representing information and to the manner in which its producers construct truth and reality. Bush's War is a PBS frontline video documentary written, produced, and directed by Michael Kirk, which chronicles primarily the political and high level military decision making processes leading up to, during, and following the 2003 invasion of Iraq by U.S. military forces. It first aired on PBS in March 2008 and was simultaneously posted to the PBS website along with a wide array of additional textual resources. At nearly four and a half hours long, Bush's war offers the viewer an in-depth look at the people behind those decision-making processes what motivated them, and what resulted from the decisions that they made. Bush's war uses stunning imagery from within the White House, the Pentagon, and other offices in Washington, D.C., as well as corresponding imagery of military and diplomatic actions on the ground in Iraq to reinforce its content. Chapter 7 of Bush's war is entitled Working in the Shadows. The chapter's title is a reference to what Dick Cheney coined in a Meet the Press interview as the dark side the phrase the dark side alludes to the many covert activities involved in both making the case for and waging war. Specifically, this concept refers to the different avenues of approach various government organizations take towards acquiring and processing information and producing intelligence. On the whole, working in the shadows makes the case that there were essentially two competing intelligence services within the U.S. government leading up to the invasion of Iraq the long-standing Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, and the newly created Office of Special Plans. The Office of Special Plans was the creation of Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld and was led by DOD Undersecretary for Policy Douglas Fythe. Daniel Benjamin, former National Security Council member, claims in the film, so they're going to do their own analysis, and they're going to show what the CIA has been missing all along, about the true relationship between Saddam and al-Qaeda. The narrator then presents the following claim. They needed people with experience in the world of intelligence, but they hired politically connected policy analysts. The filmmaker's intent is clear, and throughout the remainder of the chapter, this intent is built upon in terms of how the Office of Special Plans developed its intelligence and how the CIA continuously refuted it. The visual tone of working in the shadows is noticeably darker than other chapters. In the place of the clean, crisp stock footage of various locations in Washington, D.C., the images are dark and nighttime shots, and frequently these shots are dirty and grainy, as if shot with poor resolution on a cheap video camera. In the beginning of the chapter, the narrator claims Rumsfeld saw an opportunity for the civilians in the Department of Defense to finally get into the intelligence business, Inside the Pentagon bureaucracy, he could easily and quietly grow a nearly invisible operation. Interestingly, the corresponding video footage is that of military personnel, not civilians, and noticeably only shows those personnel from the neck down, as if to reiterate the covert nature of the ongoing intelligence gathering efforts. After introducing the formation of the Office of Special Plans and the resulting infighting between it and the CIA, the film steps up its claims regarding the severity of the conflict. War had broken out between the competing intelligence operations, the narrator claims. He goes on to refer to these quarrels as high-stake bureaucratic knife fights, a metaphor speaking not so much to the intelligence itself, but rather to the efforts each organization's leaders took to get their intelligence, their plans, and ideas to the president and then to the policy resulting from the president's decision-making. Throughout the chapter, many black-and-white still images of then-CIA Director George Tenet are shown to the viewer. These images continually portray Tenet as being worn down, tired, and defeated, behavior that corresponds with the narrator's claims that Tenet and the CIA in general were losing influence over the White House to Rumsfeld and the intelligence produced by the Office of Special Plans. So the introduction to Bush's War on PBS.org states that, and I quote, "Bush's war will be the definitive documentary analysis of one of the most challenging periods of our nation's history." It's a pretty bold claim. So several questions seem pertinent when viewing this or any similar documentary. Is it true? Is and Is it accurate? And what is the purpose or intent of the filmmakers? What is the end state? Filmmaker Jill Godmillo argues that everybody thinks they know what documentary means because everybody has seen some television programs labeled documentary, either televisual white papers, that is, so-called objective journalistic presentations of social problems, or history programs that chronicle certain social movements. Godmillo posits that regardless of truth or accuracy, value is lost when filmmakers present their work as complete historical narratives. She would likely categorize Bush's War as a film of edification, a film that leaves its audience feeling affected by the narrative it is viewed, rather than a true documentary film designed to identify the root issues of a problem in the spirit of causing or creating change by the audience. Bush's War does create this narrative. However, many issues are left completely off the map. For example, no mention... Is made of Saddam Hussein or Iraq, or for that matter, any U.S. political, diplomatic, or military action prior to 9 11. It is almost as if the underlying issues behind the Iraq war magically appear when the towers came down. So, in closing, Bush's war presents a very intriguing, very interesting view of the political and high level military decision making processes. Uh, immediately leading up to, during, and after the invasion of Iraq by U.S. forces in 2003. It presents arguments by many actors and and interpreters and paints a detailed picture of what decisions were made, who made them, and how they played out on the ground in Iraq. While the film leaves some underlying questions unanswered, it, along with its corresponding website, provides an excellent starting point for for further research by anyone inclined to do so. And that's my presentation. Uh, I have a little bit of time, I think, for some questions. Tiny little bit of time. No?
2: Well, I have a question, and I think um, I knew it. it interests me that this was a piece that interests you. And in doing it, this is a long series. You, you might show them. I think you had a few yep.
1: Right, long after. Um, So the thing that interested me the most about this documentary is that, you know, the bits of information that I had, um, you know, came from, you know, an article here, a news story there. Um, The amount of information that they packed into this four and a half hours of stuff that, you know, it had obviously had a little bit to do with the Iraq War, but not so much to do with things on the ground, which is what I knew the most about um, the whole political process behind that uh, I hadn't seen you know, so well compiled before uh, viewing this documentary.
0: Was it disturbing?
1: Disturbing? Um, after the fourth or fifth watch, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah. You talked about it, it magically the
3: Iraq war happened after 9-11. Right. Decision making in the different White Houses in wartime before, like there were issues there in the Civil War with Lincoln and his cabinet. Did they try to go back and look at how past presidents have dealt with, dealt with this
1: at all? Not in the film. No, um, there is a little bit of supporting uh, information on the website uh, as far as the history. For example, the history of Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney, um, their you know professional relationship, the past of that relationship. Um, probably a little bit about uh, Bush Sr. Um, and about, you know, a very small amount about the Gulf War, um, but that's that's the extent of it. Yes, sir?
3: There's a commercial film was taken out that of lab, chapter seven. Have you of its treatment with the
1: uh, What is the film called? Um, w, oh, is that the one we were talking about?
3: W, the, 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 no, 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 no. It's about you know, the conflict between the CIA and Oh, okay. Oh, um, the, green, the, green
1: the green zone. I have actually seen that. Uh, that's, that's an interesting, uh, interesting idea that I hadn't I mean, considered.
3: considered.
1: Yeah.
4: yeah. Thank you. So what's interesting is that you really are showing here how they can hardly avoid the devices of fiction that you know, have. Right. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Good
5: afternoon. My name is Kyle Houston, I'm currently a sergeant in the Marine Corps, and I'm also attending Ohio State University in a, uh, an enlisted officer transition program known as MESEP, and uh, I'm a fourth-year student studying strategic communications. My project is titled The Holocaust, Emotional Metaphors Used by Marines to Describe Their Experiences. During the summer of 2009, I faced the hurdle that every potential Marine officer dreads, Officer Candidate School, or also OCS. The mission of Officer Candidate School is to educate, train, evaluate and screen officer candidates to ensure they possess the moral, intellectual and physical qualities for commissioning and the leadership potential to serve successfully as a company grade officer in the operating force. During the 6-week training process, candidates are tested physically, mentally through a series of rigorous events such as physical fitness test, obstacle course, endurance course, leadership evaluations, and academic testings while being subjected to a limited amount of sleep. The majority of candidates who attend OCS are either midshipmen from, from various universities around the nation or candidates from the platoon leaders class, PLC, who coordinate with their officer selection officer in order to gain a commission. There is also a smaller group of candidates who offer more experience and in most, and in most cases age. These are Marines who are enrolled in enlisted to officer transition program known as the MESA program. This program allows enlisted Marines to maintain their active duty status while enrolled at a university with the Naval ROTC program. I'm a student in this program at the Ohio State University, and in some ways I could have considered this an advantage because I've completed recruit training approximately five years ago, but I, and I've already seen the types of treatment that, we're about, that we were about to receive at OCS. However, since I was already a Marine, I was expected to know most of what we were going to be evaluated on, And based on what former candidates who had already graduated graduated OCS told me, not only did the instructors expect prior enlisted Marines to stand up and take those leadership roles, but also the ROTC midshipmen who endured the training with me. It was the latter which worried me the most. Most ROTC midshipmen have far less experience than I, and they look up to Marines for guidance. I did not want my areas of weakness to be exposed in front of them. If I failed to do well, I would lose all credibility that I had spent my ent- entire tenure at my unit building. Now, in retrospect, I was curious to know if any of the Marines in my situation shared the same feeling I experienced. I interviewed three of my friends who attended OCS with me and who are all currently enlisted in the same program I am in. My initial, qu- my initial question dealt with what, were, uh, what they were experiences while they prepare for OCS and what they thought of the whole training process. I expected to w- hear of ways they tried to defend their masculinity and how they thought the training was not as bad as they anticipated. Instead, they just joked about it. More, interestingly, more interesting still was the method of how they described their experience at OCS. In a 26-minute interview, 64 emotional metaphors were used. Some of the examples would be, My experience at OCS was kind of a roller coaster. The sergeant instructors can't even smoke you on the quarter deck. My sergeant instructors made the next six weeks of my life worse than I can imagine. Yeah, it was like a Holocaust. Our staff members—one was a devil's reject, and the other guy looked like a bowling ball. Then I knew it was going to be a cake. I didn't want to be labeled a sandbag, or, or as you were—I I didn't want to be labeled a sandbagger or dirtbag. I looked like a concentration camp survivor. With so many emotional metaphors in such a short interview, I decided that I would try to analyze the way they intended for these for their audience to picture their story through the metaphors they chose. The interview took place on April 16, 2010, at a Bob Evans restaurant located on Olentangy. I thought that it would be a more relaxed environment where we could just conduct the interview like friends, just getting together to tell stories. Because my friends, William, Brad, and Caleb, are still active duty staff sergeants, I will refer to them only by their first names. I began the interview by stating I was not going to ask any particular questions, and that I would not even try to guide the conversation to get them to say something I needed for my project. I told them simply I was interested in their experiences prior to and during OCS. And without fail, my friends gave me rich details about what they were experiencing mentally and physically while preparing for and going through OCS. It is seemingly impossible for people to have a conversation completely rid of metaphors. According to Pearl Katz, an emotional metaphor is explained as the carrying over of frames or perspectives from one domain of experience to another. Metaphors are a way in which people enrich their stories and conversations because they, ha- because they add an element of comparison with which people can relate to. At approximately 2 minutes and 30 seconds into the interview, Brad was, Brad was describing his emotions through the entire training evolution, and he said, Well, I had a kind of a roller coaster effect. On the way down and everything leading up to it, I was pretty excited about it. We're going to go down there and get some good training, and, uh, and we're going to get this over with. It's, it's going to suck, but whatever. So I get down there and run into freaking Commander Hordenstein, and he's like, dude, this is going to be a joke. They can't even smoke you on the quarterdeck. They can't even haze you. All they're going to do is yell, and it's going to be over. So I, so I started to get this, this sucks attitude. This is going to be a waste of my time. Then they assigned me to 4th Platoon to Gunnery Sergeant Triceps, who essentially made the next six weeks of my life the worst I can imagine. Yeah, like a Holocaust. So once it started and I realized they weren't letting up, morale was down, but spirits were high, if that makes any sense. What Brad may have been implying to is the sense of powerlessness he felt while at OCS. While at OCS, the sergeant instructors play the role of authoritarian and disciplinarian. Even the slightest mess up by a candidate cannot go unpunished. The goal of every candidate is to complete OCS while hiding from the ever-lurking eyes of the instructors. With six weeks of intense training, however, this feat is practically impossible, and not only do the sergeant instructors play a specific role, but candidates also share a role that is vital to the whole training process. A candidate's role is to strictly obey every command from their instructor, given that it is a lawful order. I often wondered what, it would resu- what would result if every candidate at OCS performed a simultaneous mutiny against the instructors. What power would the ho- instructors hold over the candidates then? Absolutely None except the fact that the candidates could not graduate and gain their commission. Herein lies the sense of power, powerlessness. Brad, along with every other candidate at OCS, aspires to gain their commission and become an officer in the Marine Corps. So it's essential they also fulfill their role as a follower. This powerlessness could be related to the Jews' role in the Holocaust. They were forced to follow the orders of the cruel Nazi regime in an effort to save their lives. Likewise, candidates are also followed to fo- Likewise, candidates are also forced to follow the orders of their instructors in order to graduate OCS and gain their commission. Although my initial research was going to involve experiencing or exploring how Marines tend to perform their masculinity, I was surprised at the choice of emotional metaphors used by my friends to describe their emotions pertaining to attending OCS. These emotional metaphors dominated the entire interview, and it was quite evident that they used humor to speak about how they remember OCS. When a certain question was raised, that made one of the informants uncomfortable, their account of the story had little emotional metaphors, and thus, little humor. However, once an emotional metaphor was introduced, it also was followed by humor and then another emotional metaphor. It seemed like a cyclic process of an emotional metaphor leading to humor, which led back to another emotional metaphor. These metaphors bring not only humor to the story, but also enrich the stories with details that help the speaker's audience grasp the speaker's comparison. Without them, stores would lack humor, color, and entertainment. And with that, I would like to open it up to any questions you may have. Okay, thank you. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yes?
3: You mentioned that the metaphor use to help the audience understand. Yes. Yes.
5: I believe, I, I know exactly what you're hitting on. I believe it's a, a combination of both. They not only enrich their stories, but it's, it's how they picture. And it's also, you know, experiences that, that they've gone through or learned about, they picture that. And when they're bringing their story, it kind of merges together, and that's, that's kind of what comes out. But, yeah, it's definitely a combination of both to help the audience kind of relate to it, but also it's, it's how they know best to describe their situation and what they went through. Yes.
3: About how powerless, well, the whole metaphor of the Holocaust. Yes. So, how is this, I can see, is similar. But mass murder uh, and uh, individual failure because uh, it doesn't seem comparable
5: to me. The whole, uh, the whole Holocaust metaphor, yeah. after, you know, after, you know, during the interview, it was just laughed at, you know, kind of passed on, but, I went back and listened to the interview quite a few times, and I was kind of wondering why he, or where it even came from, the Holocaust. And I even mentioned this was with uh, with Susan. I was like, there is no way that you can compare OCS to the Holocaust. There is absolutely no way. So we were trying to analyze maybe some way he, you know, under the table or something tried to, where he got that comparison. And really, the only place that that I found was the powerlessness that he felt. Not a, obviously, we didn't get murdered. We weren't starved, or we weren't human test subjects or anything like that. But I think that powerlessness is where he got his comparison. And that is often...
3: Sort of like if you started with. This
5: is going to be cake. Exactly. That's just one of the metaphors.
3: change? find so, or don't find training so
5: I would, I would think. Well, I started my paper off saying it's the largest hurdle that, that we face in gaining our commission. It's, a, it's the one event throughout the whole process of going, either from a civilian to an officer, or like myself, enlisted marine to an officer. It's the largest hurdle to get through, and I think there's so much emphasis placed on it. And then once you get down there and well it's basically the anticipation leading up to it and then getting down there and experiencing it, it's your one thing. That's one thing that you focus on, and I believe that's that's possibly how they describe their you know their emotions going through it's their one one hurdle that they have to get over and they take it just one hurdle at a time. So yes,
6: in the um, you
3: said you ever do three uh, three of your yes.
5: It's funny that you brought that up because there was actually, Remember, I said, uh, Brad, he had mentioned his experience. like It was like a roller coaster. Not two, three minutes later, and he explained his roller coaster, how he was excited, met his staff, or got down there and heard it was going to be cake, and he's like let down. But then he met his staff, and he's right back up. Well, just a couple minutes later, another one said, well, you speak of roller coaster. Mine was completely opposite. And then he went to explain his, which was completely opposite. But one thing that I did notice uh, my, my one friend, he was extremely nervous. I mean, he was the most nervous about OCS than all four of us. When when we when I asked a question concerning OCS and a specific example that made him nervous, I, I paid attention. He did not use an emotional metaphor whatsoever during his whole conversation. But when it when it started, the conversation started to lighten up. He started going back to emotional metaphors, and he's a very humorous guy. But he was he he literally said, "I'm feeling sick to my stomach during the, <laughs> during the interview because it, I guess it's a flashback or something." So. Yes? Uh,
2: I'm struck by what
4: almost I mean, Is this training to develop leaders
5: or you develop This is actually to, to evaluate if you possess the, the qualities to become a leader. You, you are somewhat of a follower, as in instructors yell at you, you do what they say. However, they do want to see that you possess the qualities to, to lead. So they'll put you in a position to make a judgment call. Whether you fail or succeed, it doesn't matter. They just want to see if you can learn from that that actual evolution or whatever they may put you in whatever situation.
4: I
2: think
5: we can pick this up at the end. Okay, yes, that's yes, yes that's you. fine.
7: Uh, My name is Joshua Green. I'm an undergraduate student here at Ohio State, and I am currently majoring in computer science and engineering. I joined the Army at the age of 17, and I received recognition for being the youngest soldier in the 509th Airborne Infantry at the time of its conception in 2005. Uh, I was in the Army for four years, and I separated in December 2008. I deployed to Iraq in 2006 for 16 months as a member of a sniper team within the 509th Recon Platoon. As a student, I have interviewed two veterans of the Iraq War that I've served with during my deployment. This small study, Tired of Feeling Lucky, A Recollection of War, is an evaluation of the emotions revealed within two one-hour interviews. The two interviewees and I were soldiers deployed as a part of the same battalion during the years 2006-2007 to Fallujah and Kalsu regions. Alex, Steve, and I experienced many of the same situations, but each was rendered with unique outlooks. The different perspectives and recollections provide a three-dimensional insight of the intense and wide emotional spectrum experienced by soldiers on the battlefield as well as the wear and tear soldiers endure as well as the wear and tear soldiers endure and their coping mechanisms for stress in extreme emotional situations throughout my analysis i make use of my own anecdotal experiences and close knowledge of the interviewees to reveal and translate the hidden messages at work within the interviews as a member of the inside niche I am familiar with the commonly used metaphors, acronyms, and undisclosed background available in the text so that readily ena- enables me to process, evaluate, and deduce the information for what it truly is, bypassing the need to conscious, uh, consciously decipher at first. I took notice that both interviewees refrain from using the first-person plural. Because my interviewees uh, conversed with me using the first-person singular, a commonly un- an uncommon trait for military men, I believe that they did not feel the need to be reserved and were able, to, were able and willing to fully divulge their individual stories. After evaluating my data through numer- uh, numerous e- evaluative lenses, I noticed an outstanding exhibit of emotions within the dialogues. Sorrow, rage, frustration, guilt, and hatred were the most powerful emotions displayed. Alex passionately expressed these emotions when recollecting a moment his friends were killed in an IED. Alex stated during the interview, and I quote, sure we got hit a couple of times, but we were lucky most of the time. I hated feeling lucky. I remember the day a huge ID fried a whole Alpha Company Humvee. I was glued to the radio. I heard the battle rosters, and I wanted to know who it was. I sat there trying to decide which Fs and which Os I would be particularly crushed by if they died. It turned out being two of my roommates from Alpha Company back, the first summer, back in the first summer we were in Alaska. I had since lost touch with both of them. I wanted to walk outside the outpost and shoot every person I saw. Alex's immediate emotional response was to worry. He refused to leave the radio as he worried about the dead's unknown identities. He knew he had friends in Alpha Company, and he calculated the initials of of his friends and compared them to the roster numbers that was sent over the radio. He felt sorrow when he realized it was his friends who were killed. He felt helplessness and frustration when there was nothing he could immediately do. He was powerless over the loss of his friends. There was no enemy to instantly retaliate against, nor did the enemy have a visible identity to hunt and destroy. There was a great level of frustration associated with powerlessness. As a reaction to his uncontrollable frustration experienced by the uh, situation, Alex wanted to give up the futility of sorting friend from foe and shoot every Iraqi. As a, con- as a consequence of previous events, Alex had acquired hatred for feeling lucky. With any context, the statement within any context the statement is c- uh, peculiar. Peculiar. But from within the battlefield, the statement becomes increasingly bizarre and counterintuitive. Alex explained that any circumstance which placed him in a situation that left him better off than any of his friends, who had suffered just as much as he had, caused him to experience guilt, even if the uh, situation was out of his control. Alex also recalled feeling guilty when another platoon encountered a firefight while while he wasn't there to help. He said the guilt would be compounded if someone was injured during the battle. He was, compelled to be, he was compelled to be in action with them, not for the mere excitement, but for the sense of obligation to his friends that he, was, that he felt was being left unfulfilled. From indoctrina- uh, indoctrination, soldiers are taught to put an emphasis on teamwork and cohesion. This mentality becomes further ingrained as experience ma- experiences manifest and tighter bombs form. This cohesion creates a deep sense of consideration and awareness for one's peers. Alex later explains, I think we have a heightened sense of equality and justice. Within just one of Alex's many recollections, five passionate experiences were expressed. The emotions rendered were produced merely by a single day's event, an event that was not rare or unique, or a unique occurrence experienced by the soldiers of the 509th. Situations which forced soldiers to face stress, fear, anxiousness, isolation, obsession, pride, and regret were encountered nearly every day for an incredible length of time. Soldiers, even at war, were not spared uh, from incompetence, intimidation, or discrimination. The world, the world soldiers live in forces extreme circumstances upon them, far above the average stress or emotional turbulence encountered by civilians on the home front. Uh, do you have any questions?
4: Right, everybody yeah, was home a few years later. A, a right. Uh, I wonder, since both of you guys were interviewing people you knew well and people who sort have of, shared the experience, what kind of communications do you could see happening with other people who are not involved, like with family members? If you would rely on metaphors or if you would not talk at all, if you would have this kind of conversation?
7: Um, I could speak on my, my own account. And I definitely have a tendency to use the first-person plural. Uh, We did a personal narrative, and that, my first draft, was all uh, first-person plural. And uh, it it definitely is a uh, a distancing factor. And uh, I I was, after noticing this, I was actually kind of honored that we did have this conversation in the first-person singular. And I I think it uh, wasn't noticed at first, but I'm glad I, I did notice it.
3: I want to ask, maybe it was so Things like excitement.
7: How, that was there. Uh, <laughs> Eternity. Uh, yes.
3: Amazement. Awe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, things that are on the more positive end of this are on the more, not just uh, fear and loathing, but uh, sort of incredible uh, excitement almost. And sometimes, sense, oh my God, did you see that?
7: Right. It's, of
3: accomplishment.
7: it's definitely uh, absent from the paper, business. but not from not from reality, and not from within the interviews either. Um, this is definitely a condensed version, mm-hmm. and uh, I think from the interviews I counted 32 emotions, um, somewhere in that range, and um, I'd say the most meat, the most of the meat of it was really these few emotions because of just the way that conversation took its turn. Um, I mean, if we had the same conversation today, I guarantee it would take us down a different path, and it's just where it ended up as far as its concentration. But absolutely, there there are all of those emotions, and uh, uh, they're really powerful, and that's actually kind of the point of, of this paper, I, f- I believe, is that there is this, this exceptionally wide range of emotions felt on a day-to-day basis. And... Uh, I'd like to believe that you don't really experience that at home, especially in its frequency. One
2: thing that wasn't quite as evident, Kyle's um, was a face-to-face interview. Oh, yeah. Josh's interviews were uh, instant messages. Right.
7: Uh he, he's still in the army but he had just gotten back. He had uh, just gotten right
2: back, though, when you had the conversation. Versus one who it been back for a while? It was it was a it was
7: a few months, but definitely not wow. not long enough for it to to be uh, I don't know. It's definitely not enough time. But uh, the he deployed to Afghanistan. Uh this deployment was with Iraq. So the Iraq deployment was uh, what, two years ago? But I mean obviously those emotions are still there. And and I actually believe that since he had just Gotten back so recently that his some of his emotions were much more passionate than the other ones, uh, especially the hatred. It was very livid and very evident. I think the the range of emotions is wider there, honestly, than it is here. Um, it's kind of weird. I didn't I didn't talk about this in my paper, but I, I feel that a lot of the emotions I experience at home uh, affect me differently now that I'm home. Um, if somebody wants to study that? That'd be great, but I haven't.
4: <laughs> Thank you.
7: Thank you.
6: Good afternoon, folks. My project was titled The Absolute Professional, a study of Green Beret self-representations. My name is Daniel Dixon. I am the senior engineer on a Special Forces Operational Detachment Alpha, also known as ODA or a SFA team. I completed the two years of required training to become a Green Beret at Fort Bragg in 2005 and have been assigned to the same team ever since. I deployed to Iraq in 2006, and then deployed again to Afghanistan in 2009. I consider my completion of the SFQC, or Special Forces Qualification Course, as a benchmark in my life, and I feel a profound connection to the organization and the men who serve in it. I wanted to explore the emotions and attitudes that Green Berets possess about themselves and their line of work. My project consisted of four interviews with men currently serving in my Special Forces company. I interviewed Ramon, Jim, Nick, and Sean. Ramon is a 42-year-old warrant officer that previously enlisted as a Special Forces medical sergeant. He's been on multiple deployments to include rotations to Iraq and Afghanistan. Ramon's primary responsibility is chief of staff and executive officer on my ODA. Jim is a 35-year-old staff sergeant that enlisted in the Army as a 19 Delta, which is a cavalry scout. He now serves as a special forces communications sergeant on my ODA. He went with us to Afghanistan. Nick is a 28-year-old chief warrant officer. He joined special forces right out of high school, served on an ODA in Kosovo and Iraq as a weapons sergeant, and then went to the SF warrant officer course prior to our deployment to Afghanistan. Nick was my primary motivation for going to special forces, and his encouragement gave me the desire to try out. Sean is a 36-year-old sergeant first class he deployed with me to Iraq in 2005 as a special forces communication sergeant, but he was on a different team. He was then assigned to my team as the intel sergeant. He was near fatally wounded in Afghanistan on the 31st of May 2009 in a vicious gunfight with Taliban fighters. He continues to serve in SF and is on medical orders until he fully recovers. Sean was supposed to be here today, but unfortunately he couldn't make it. The interviews took between 10 and 20 minutes each. I noticed that all four interviewees were very comfortable and expressed clear ideas in answering my questions. A very interesting observation that I made was the use of pronouns. The interviewees tended to refer themselves in the first person plural as opposed to the first person singular. A good example of this is when I asked Ramon about his personal perceptions of special forces since becoming a Green Beret. He responded, The things that makes us better than any other fighting force out there is our ability to deal with... Uh, chaos. When things are really going bad and when the suck fest is set on, you know, full effect, that's when we're really, you know, at our best. This indicates a prevalent group identity. Questions that were directed to personal perspectives of being SF qualified and questions about personal comparative opinions were answered with pluralistic responses, assuming, assuming a group response. The soldiers had no problem defining the difference between SF and the rest of the military. The Special Forces is an exclusive in-group with definitive boundaries. One is either tabbed or not. Tabbed, meaning SF qualified in reference to the Special Forces tab that is authorized for wear on a uniform once the SFQC is completed. Presenting negative opinions of soldiers outside of SF seems to be one way of affirming pride in the organization. Jim referred to SF soldiers as varsity, compared to other soldiers as junior varsity. The sports metaphor is interesting since physical fitness, physical fitness and strength are as essential in SF as mental toughness. Ramon suggests that the rigors of, of the SFQC give the SF soldier the ability to overcome hardships better than other soldiers. Breaking away from the conventional mindset, thinking outside the box, as Sean calls it, allows SF to be bendable without breaking. Sean believes SF soldiers like to be regarded as separate from the rest of the armed forces so that they can maintain their true unconventionality and are not bound by the same structural constraints such as rank and regulation that the rest of the military conforms to. Words such as professionalism, commitment, self-sustaining, and subject matter experts were used to describe both the Special Forces Regiment and the SF individuals. The term subject matter expert, or SME, is used to describe anyone who is required to be a professional at a particular skill or multiple skill sets. The Green Beret must be an expert at his job, and the team relies on this individual expertise in order for the collective group to operate smoothly. Sean says, A good, solid SF team knows the strengths and weaknesses of every member on a team, and we all use that as one working machine. And ultimately, when it's tested, like we were on the 31st of May, the machine works flawlessly. Sean also states that from the gut-check type training to the military-specific training, to include land, nav, weapons, communications, the whole shoot, move, and communicate concept, we have to be subject matter experts in in all that we do because we're trainers as well. We're not just playing the game, we're coaching it too. Nick says that the level of professionalism in SF sets the unit apart from other military organizations and the SF individual apart from soldiers labeling the SF warrior the absolute professional. Membership to this exclusive group requires a commitment that few soldiers have made, and once a person becomes a qualified member of the group, the status and reputation of special forces is embodied by a group identity. SF soldiers feel a self-actualizing attitude towards living up to ambitions and expectations of their own definition of excellence in the field of soldiery. The group identity becomes as important, if not more, than the soldier's individual identity and the soldiers feel that they have the authority to speak on behalf of other Green Berets. Individual insecurities are certainly remedied by a sense of superiority established by belonging to a group which simply the name speaks for itself. This at least offers a small glimpse of understanding why Special Forces soldiers feel they are so special. So if you guys have any questions, Dory? I'm sure we do, and I'm sure there are terms and terminology that we use. So, I mean, even the whole SME, I'm sure other organizations use that, but we use it frequently. And uh, I mean, I'm I'm sure that there are, you know, specific encoding that we use that inside the community that maybe we don't even, maybe we're not even aware of it, that we just use it. Yeah, exactly. It's just it's you know the SFQC, the Special Forces pipeline to go through the course takes about two years, so it's a very long indoctrination process. I mean, by the time you start selection, and then two years later you're putting a green beret on your head, uh, it, you know you definitely have been immersed into the in the, the, the kind of the culturalistic uh, um, you know nuances of, of of what it means to be you know qualified or part of the community.
2: In the, as a week, right? And we to work through recognizing the differences is how it kind of came up. But one of the things you said here, at least alluded to, and you've talked to me before, is during your deployment that you looked different than other soldiers on the ground. Did you describe that you, your group had their beards? Their yeah, the... Codes.
6: Well and the group the group itself like I said is, is almost anti military and it's it, it, it it's kind of a paradox because here you are a member of the armed forces but you're trying to either not look like a member of the armed forces, there's resentment towards units that you know that are in the armed forces. Um, I'm sure the resentment goes both ways, but, you know, we're in Afghanistan and Iraq. I mean, we'd grow full facial hair. Guys would, guys would do civilian clothes. Guys would go mix max uniforms. And, you know, guys did things to basically set themselves apart from the regular Army because they wanted that validation. They wanted that, hey, I'm special, you know. And, and, it, and it's funny because, you know, when, when you look back at it, you don't, you think it's innocent. You know, oh, this is just what everybody else is doing. But, you know, it really is a, it's a deliberate attempt you know, for men in, in this organization then, you know, to, to try to cast themselves separate, you know, to, to paint themselves as being different than a, than a, a normal soldier. So it's, it's definitely interesting.
2: It's really
6: an interesting
2: performance of status. It um, is. It yeah. sort of defies uh, what one would
6: expect. And that's why I'm curious, too, with the pronouns. I, like, you know, we, we talked about how a lot of people use the the plural um singular, um, I'm sorry, the, the, the first person plural, as kind of a buffer to kind of try not to accept responsibility for what they're saying, but to kind of pass it off as being a larger element that, to take responsibility for what they're saying. But, you know, when I was actually interviewing these guys, like, it's almost like they believe they can speak for everybody. It was almost the opposite. It was they weren't trying to pass it off. They were basically saying, hey, I know what everybody's thinking, and we all think the same thing. And one of the, one of the pieces that I'd used in my study was actually, it was a Green Beret study in 1970, that was analyzing basically the thought process and the, and the social dynamic of special forces soldier. It was, you know, funny how relevant the, the, the topic was to my project. And in, in my larger paper, I talk more about that. But you know, they, they talk about how there is such a group identity and how these soldiers—I mean, you're either in or you're out—and it's uh, it was, it was definitely interesting, you know, to read about that. And compare it, sir. Um, are there special
3: forces?
6: No. We have uh, women who can work as uh, support personnel for us, but to, in Special Forces, you basically have one job set. That's the career management field 18 series is what we call it. 18 18, um, 18 series is the MOS, and that's specifically a combat MOS for men only. So, which like I said the the masculinity definitely in an all mas- masculine element. You know, said it's. That it's uh, Know definitely has has that going for it too. There's a lot of uh, you know ma- uh, signs of masculinity or, or, the, or the, this idea of what makes the you know the true soldier the the, the true warrior. To your knowledge, are
3: there any female
6: uh, equivalents of special forces? No, I mean other countries might have similar things, but as far as in the United States military, um, at, least, at least at least what's that?
2: No women in combat.
6: Well, yeah, exactly. Well, there's there's an actual yeah DoD policy that. That refrains from keeping women from entering combat roles, combat-specific roles. But um, at least in the American Special Operations Forces, uh, all of them are, are, are male-only. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> um, thanks for your presentation. I
3: have a question about comparing Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay. Are there any differences either between Special Forces and the other services or within the Special Forces area? um in those two?
6: Um, Well, I think both theaters are pretty broken up evenly, and you have basically two active duty groups per theater, and then you have National Guard groups that support each. Uh, As far as uh, the differences, I think a lot of SF guys will tell you that, at least in Iraq, it seemed like they had more um, oversight from conventional forces, where Afghanistan it was more of a special operations mission, and they were getting to do some of the stuff that we're, we're trained to do versus... You know, being big army, and uh, yeah, the mission set's a little different because you have that true unconventional war going on in, in Afghanistan, where in Iraq, you know, it, I, I hate to say it, but it's more like a police action. So, sir, sure.
3: what are the different subject matters? You
6: can in? What's that?
3: What are the different subject matters? Someone could be expert
6: in. Uh, well, I mean, you have four primary um, job focuses in each in Special Forces. You have an engineer. A weapons guy, a medic, and a communication sergeant, and then after that, then you have a communicate or a, um, a command cell that's made up of an officer, a master sergeant, an intelligence sergeant, and a uh, and a warrant officer. So those four guys. So basically, there's four major jobs, and then. Basically, any job that you can do in the military, imagine that you can do that in Special Forces. You know, we have guys that need to be masters in logistics. We need guys who are masters in medicine, guys who are masters in administration. Because an SFODA is only 12 guys, and we'll go behind enemy lines, and we're... Supposed to be responsible for taking care of ourselves. One of the biggest things that guys said in their interviews was that the self-sustainment piece and how important that self-sustainment was. That you know, you've got guys that can do one job in the army and they do it well. Well, I do my job and five other guys' jobs in the army. We do it better. You know, so that was kind of the attitude. Um, There's so many different skill sets. I mean, we have guys that are snipers. We have guys that are uh, experts in breaching. Guys that are experts in. uh, intelligence guys that are experts in communications, intercepting communications, everything. So basically, the whole special operations gamut. You know, you have guys that are on ODAs that are doing these, and and uh, that that expertise is really important. Like guys really rely on that. I mean, they, and you know, guys on your team, you only have twelve guys, so so everybody's got to kind of pick up their own weight. Yeah. I still think it's there, at least in our in our position, because we had guys go to different teams. And my team was lucky that we kept most of the guys on our team. But uh, even then, you know, we'd talk about guys who got transferred to other teams, but we'd still, you know, act like they were on our team, and we'd still hang out with each other socially. And, and that's, that's, you know, there, there's such a collective identity there that you never even lose it. Like Sean, who was injured, he, he's no longer on our team, obviously. He, he was shot through the pelvis and shot through the wrist. He, he can't perform his duties as, a, as an operator, but, you know, he'll always be forever on the team because, you know, he was a part of that organization, so. And
2: you're still
6: active? Yeah. So it's right. Well,
2: I think we should call move on. So. Thank you.
8: All right, my name is uh, Chad McMahon, and uh, I enlisted in the Marine Corps uh, for four years of active service, beginning in 2003 and ending in 2007. I completed three tours as an infantryman in uh, Iraq, and I obtained the rank of sergeant before I got out. In 2004, I was sent on my first deployment as a Marine in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. My unit, 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines, had been sent to a city 30 miles south of Baghdad, called a Scandaria, which was in the middle of what was known as the Triangle of Death, nicknamed by the media. The main forward operating base, or FOB, as uh, we call it, we operate out of, was a large Russian-built power plant on the banks of the Euphrates River. The power plant was a constant target for insurgents because of our presence there and because of the significance the power plant had as it, held, as it produced the majority of the country's electricity. The arrival at our FOB was welcomed with a mortar attack from insurgents that killed a Marine from my unit, only five minutes of of us being there. As the deployment deployment went on, and throughout the course of the deployment, things would only get worse. Finally, after about seven months, we were told in late January we'd be leaving, after dodging mortar, rocket, and ID attacks, as well as surviving a handful of intense firefights. On January 31, 2005, my squad of infantry Marines went on our last patrol before we'd start to pack for our return home to the United States. It was a routine monitor patrol in Humvees where we'd go out to, pre- to prevent, disrupt, or deter enemy forces from operating in our area of operations. We had finished our patrol, and we were heading back to our FOB to begin packing for home. A portion of the road that we were traveling, on, uh, traveling back on had been blown out uh, by a massive IED, or improvised explosive device, uh, a few days prior. And as we approached the crater for the second time that day, I thought we were fine, and then uh, the unexpected happened. The second Humvee in our patrol was completely destroyed by an IED, killing three Marines instantly and leaving two others severely injured, only a few miles from our FOB, which we could see from the attack site. The Humvee had been hit with an IED that the EOD team, or Explosive Ordnance Disposal Team, later said was around 15 155 millimeter explosive artillery rounds, buried underneath a portion of road that was still drivable. The insurgents had used this first crater as a disguise for a larger, more effective ID. I was driving the third vehicle in, in the patrol that day and uh, was the first responder to reach the attack site and assess the damage, so I have a firsthand a- account of uh, what happened. The stories that uh, resulted in this incident and the blame and responsibility that was shifting wouldn't become evident to me until I had read the book that one of the fallen Marines mothers wrote. The book was published after my return from my second deployment to Iraq and before my third and final deployment. The book, entitled When Johnny Doesn't Come Marching Home, A Mother's Story of the Price for Freedom by Rhonda Winfield, is, is what sparked my interest in my research and how mothers represent themselves during the time of war in which their son was killed. In my research for information about mothers of service members in Iraq, I looked at seven different articles and archives as well as Internet sources, but the two I drew from most were articles by Karen, Karen Slatterly and a- Anna C. Gardner and Nicole... I can't pronounce this. I'm going to try... Capuccio. Uh, their research talks about the patriotic mother, the stereotypes associated with the archetypes of patriotic mothers, and good mothers, good mothers of service members during wartime. Some similar traits that I noticed in both articles were the conflicts of the archetypes of good mothers and patriotic mothers. The research suggests that the archetype of a patriotic mother is quoted is a supporting and a caring mother who is also stoic and silent and brave in the face of war. She unfailingly supports the nation's war effort and her child's participation in it, despite the threat of death to her child. The archetype of a good mother is a mother that protects and cares for a child and wouldn't want them to go to war, so this conflicts with the archetype of a patriotic mother. The past has shown that there are, is there's little research regarding mothers during wartime and even more so of mothers who come out and speak out about the war after their child has been killed in the conflict. My research concentrates on uh, what drives these mothers to come forward and share their experiences, protests, or support for the war publicly. In my research, I noticed that there are there many factors to contribute to how a mother feels about our child's roles in war and how the role of patriotism plays a large part in their interpretation on her on their child's service. After reading my friend and fellow Marines mother's book, I'd realize what a patriot and a good mother Mrs. Winfield is. After the loss of her son in the Iraqi conflict, Ms. Winfield chose to go to rallies and appear on national television next to Cindy Sheehan's supporters to let her voice be heard in support of the war and to back the President's decision to be involved in the Middle East. Mrs. Winfield shared the same beliefs that her late son Jason and her other son Justin, who serves in the Army, shared. She felt that freedom and democracy were attacked on September 11th and that innocent civilians had paid the price. It was better to take the fight to the terrorist insurgents on their land than to have them attack ours. Even after the loss and the grief that were shared by other mothers, like Cindy Sheehan, Mrs. Winfield continued to support the war effort. Having already given her son, she decided to give more to its cause. In the end of her book, she she asks herself if she thinks she has done something that her son Jason would be proud of, and that if she had represented his beliefs in the best way that she could. I think she did, and that separates her from mothers who protest after the fact, like Cindy Sheehan, who protested when her son, who volunteered for two, two deployments, was killed in combat. My conclusion concerning the archetypes of patriotic and good mothers is that it's not best to make conclusion of, conclusions of good mothers and patriotic mothers based on the common archetypes alone. Each mother is different, although they share some similarities and circumstances. One thing that I felt that drove that drove these mothers to come forward and to speak out in support or dissent towards the war was that since their child no longer had a voice, they feel that they need to carry on for them so they are not forgotten. Mrs. Winfield's book is one of these examples. Her, bo- her book begins with a poem that I'll now read from and is in her son's voice as she thinks he would sound if he were saying it. And this is the handout that I passed out for you. So, Last call. Howdy, Ma. I know it's 4 a.m. I just want a chance to hear your voice again. Thanks for all you've done. I was... Always proud to be your son. Okay. Sorry. That's okay. You don't need to finish. Are you sure?
2: Yeah. I'm I, sure. I could
8: try, so. Dad's got a good voice. Dad, why don't you read it? No? Yeah. It's okay. Thanks for all you've done. I was always proud to be
2: your son. I need you not to worry because I'm almost
6: home. Just one final mission. And I'll be landing back home on a sacred ground I fought for, another casualty of war. They're gonna fly me into Dover with a flag on my chest. And I sure wish I could ride on the bus with the rest. But it just can't be. Freedom isn't really free. I was so proud to serve, though I hated to leave. Sometimes you got to pay the price for what you believe. And in the late night, when you're down on your knees, Thank God for those who have bought you all your liberties. I'm going to miss you all. Just glad I had the chance to call. Mama, please be strong when they arrive. When they arrive in dress blues, you hear all along they would bring you the news that I wouldn't be back. Only two survived the attack. I pray that you won't get lost in a grief-filled haze. You still got my two baby brothers to raise, and they just can't see. Right along with them. you'll tell them how I love them, and they'll never walk alone. I always, I'll always be beside them, not a foot, not at the foot of a stone. Tell them to talk to me. I gave them, gave them my life to keep them free. So I was proud to serve, though I hated to leave. Sometimes you got to pay the price for what you believe. And in the late night, when you're down on your knees, thank God for those who bought you all your liberties. I'm going to miss you all, just glad I had the chance to call. As the tears stream down my face, I have to let you go. I'll say I'll love you, and I'll pray that you'll know it's always been that way. You made me the man I am today. And I was so proud to serve, though I hated to leave. Sometimes you've got to pay the price for what you believe. And in the late night, when you're down on your knees, thank God for those who bought you all your liberties. I'm
8: going to miss you all. Just glad I had the chance to call. Howdy, Mom. I know it's for I am. Thanks. Sorry, this is not something I'd talk about, so...
9: America Sloan and my projects Visualizing the Experience of War, a Study of Storytelling Through Art. In December 2008, I separated from the Air Force after six years of active duty in order to pursue a degree in fine arts at The Ohio State University. My transition from military to civilian life within an academic setting was profoundly more difficult than I had anticipated. While looking for ways to better integrate to better integrate myself at OSU, I came across a call for entries for OSU's Urban Art Spaces Idea Lab program. The Idea Lab is an annual program open to any student at OSU to apply, in which if selected, funding and expert advice is available to assist the student in transforming their idea into a reality. The program seemed like like the perfect venue for me to further explore my own difficult transition and displacement as well as provide an opportunity for other local veterans. Visualizing the Experience of War project is my attempt to reconcile what seems to be an experiential barrier between my new civilian environment and me as a veteran through storytelling and visual art. In this project, artists and veteran participants have been paired up and the veteran is to share with the artist his personal experience of war. The personal stories are not to be recorded or displayed, but shared privately between the artist and the veteran. The artist will then create a piece of work reflecting his impression of the shared story in any medium he or she determines the best way to express their response. The works created through the Visualizing the Experiences of War project will, be, will then be displayed at the Urban Art Space in downtown Columbus August through October. The idea for the Visualizing the Experiences of War project is to educate on a base awareness level about the firsthand experiences of war. My collaborator, Ash Wilson, and I also hope to educate on an emotional level. Visual art is an excellent mode for conveying emotion, although every medium has its limitations. It's our hope to have many different types of art media used in the creation of the artworks. We wish for each artist to choose the medium he feels will best enable him to express his reactions to the veteran's story. According to Maya Angelou, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. It's our hope the project will serve to free the participating veterans of this burden and perhaps encourage others to share their stories as well. There are two sides to the process, that of the veteran and that of the artist. Originally, we expected that the creation of each work would involve one personal interview between the veteran and the artist. The story would be communicated and the artist would then go work on his uh, artwork and interpreting uh, the story and translating it through art. One thing we did not anticipate was the need or desire for further collaboration. My own participation in this project as a veteran I shared my story with artist George Gregory, a graduate student in sculpture. Shortly after I shared my experiences with George, he expressed to me apprehension and determining what he would portray about me through his work. He chose to discuss with me his ideas for the piece he is creating and wanted my feedback. This began an ongoing dialogue and collaboration in the idea formulation of the work. In working with George, because I'm an artist as well, he did not feel pressure to conform his ideas to any particular style of art. He was confident I would be open to whatever form he chose to explore. However, he did desire my agreement in what the work would ultimately reveal about my personal experiences. Conversely, when I, performing in the capacity of an artist, interviewed veteran Dan Dixon for the project, we immediately agreed on the theme my work would convey about his experiences. However, the trouble I haven't encountered on the artist end is satisfying Dan's understanding of what art is or what he considers a legitimate form for my work to take in representing his story and still allowing myself enough creative freedom to construct an interesting artwork. Dan and I plan to meet several more times and work together towards creating a work that adequately reflects his story and is successful according to both our definitions and understanding of art. Visualizing the Experiences of War Project is, pairing, is a pairing of veterans and artists in order to express veterans' personal stories of war in a meaningful and accessible way. The collaborative artworks will be on display at the Urban Art Space from August through October. Yeah. Any questions? How many We have twenty pairs. It's
2: a really
3: exciting project. Yes. Um, Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> right. um.
9: In creating and discussing the artworks, as of now, are still being created. Oh, okay. So there's no reflection at this point. Yes.
2: So you said the story that is told is um, confidential. It's, it's not something that is read told directly.
9: No, no, it's translated and in, uh, through our work. Yes.
2: And, is, and is the idea that it will
9: not be retold verbally. That is. The original concept, of course, if the veteran and the artist agree, yeah. um, we're um, very flexible. Um, yes. It's almost,
2: it's, it's supposed to be a story that may not be um, shared in a broader way, but rather shared in you know, a private way, even to the others. Is
9: Yes. Who
2: so. are the Who are the
3: artists?
9: Uh, most of them are from uh, students at OSU. We have faculty. Um, we have instructors, um, community artists. There's an artist call, and basically, we turned down very few people. It was, it was curated based on interest. I wanted people to actually be interested in the project. I'm fascinated by
4: the yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.
9: All right.
10: Good afternoon, and last but not least. My name is Ambrose Schulte, and today I'm going to talk to you guys about veterans' transition stories. Victor Turner talks about liminality in his essay, Betwixt and Between, the Liminal Period and Rites of Passage. In this influential essay, he describes liminality as the transition space or threshold between two states. He he states that these liminal times or spaces deserve special attention as constructive building blocks for change or possibly transformation and initiation to another level of consciousness. In November of 2008, I found myself in the midst of one of these liminal phases. I was trying to make sense of the last seven and a half years of my life while sitting at an out-processing station in Bangor, Washington. I was leaving the United States Navy and beginning life as a civilian. My identity as a sailor was slipping from the forefront of my mind as I tried to regain my identity as Ambrose. Almost a year later, I was still identifying myself with parts of the Navy. It was clear that my transition experience was not as simple as changing my job or title. It was more than the standard process of going to a class, filling out a checkout sheet, and signing a few sheets of paper. It was a continuum of events, emotions, and ideas that are still at work today. This this continuum contains every aspect of my life, starting from how I made my decision to leave the Navy to the present day. My experience transitioning out of the Navy sparked my interest in other people's transition experiences. I, I began to gather my data by interviewing four veterans about their transition experiences, and I recorded our conversations. All four people I interviewed served in at least one branch of the armed forces, deployed, separated from the military, and are currently attending OSU. All their names have been changed for the purpose of this paper. I informed them that I was doing research on military transitions and asked them to tell me their transition experience. After conducting these interviews, certain phases began to develop in the the stories veterans were telling me. I've broken down their stories of this liminal space that exists between being in and out of the military in the four separate phases. Indecision, distrust, disconnection, and reintegration. This separation suggests that these people's transition stories were expressed in a way that is very similar to the continuum that I'd experienced when I left the Navy. Their stories also deserve special attention, as as Turner has pointed out, because it is in this threshold where great constructive changes can be made in this ever-growing number of people leaving the military. Michael said, I decided pretty early, pretty early on to get out, to be honest with you. I hated the Army. For him, boot camp was when he decided to get out. He related his experience to the main character in the movie Jarhead, meaning when Michael met his drill instructor, he wanted to get out of the Army, but he still had to fulfill his contract. For any service member, there comes a time when their contract will expire. Generally speaking, about a year before this date, their chain of command will inquire whether or not the service member will re-enlist. Then the service member will have to vocalize their decision to their superiors, immediately putting them into one of two groups. Those who are staying in the military, And those who are not. When each person when each person made their decision wasn't always clear. For some, it was a daily compare and contrast where a tally of pros and cons seemed to be stored in their minds, which they added to with every experience. For others, it was a clear-cut decision. How they made these decisions varied as widely as the people making them. How they told the story of making this decision varied just as much. Michael knew Michael knew when he had made the decision to leave. In contrast, Joseph and Chuck wanted to express, not not that they wanted to leave, but why. I could tell that Michael didn't like the Army from the start. It was clear his intentions were to get out from the time he began. However, he did not convey his intentions to his his superiors until they had approached him about it. All their stories suggest to me that there's a lot more going on in the decision-making process than a contract ending and a person moving on with their lives. Just because a decision was made doesn't mean it was set in stone. The opportunity to re-enlist exists until the last possible moment, and the stories of this are focused on during the distress phase. Chuck talks about his experience with his retention officer and his chain of command during his third tour in Iraq. He talked with us. Who's going to re-enlist? Who's going to get out? It was like 50-50. It was when my company, first sergeant, CO, my, my company first sergeant and CO started to talk to me. Here's what they're going to offer you. Here's what we can offer you here's what we can guarantee you." And it's like, stay in, do three years, my choice of duty assignment, which is guaranteed non-deployable, supposedly by the sergeant major. I later found out that wasn't true, and that's part of the reason why I decided to get out. So they said $53,000 to reenlist, tax-free because I was in a combat zone, which sounded great, but it was my third deployment in four years, so I pretty much had had it. So I told him I was probably gonna get out. During the distress phase, each member described being offered some sort of option or benefit to reenlist. Each command has a, pers- a person designated to track and report on retention within each unit, and sometimes is called the retention officer. The retention officer usually usually will offer each person an incentive such as such as money to reenlist. The options vary widely depending upon certain factors such as rank, time in service, job specialty, and current needs of the military. Each person described how their decision to get out was tested with these incentives of money, promotion, and career enhancing opportunities. They often described these offers as being deceptive or straight out lies. It was through the stories of this phase that they suggested a burgeoning distrust between them and their superiors, which fortified their decision to get out. The decision is often the first time a military member will receive a suggestion from his or her superior and be able to deny that suggestion outright. It is this overt action that clearly separates the individual's desires, and the desires of his or her her organization. This begins to suggest to me a shift from an in-group to an out-group status. During the disconnection phase, each person tells a story that is representative of his or her perceived shift from the in-group into the out-group. Chuck told a story of what what happened once his superiors realized he wasn't going to re-enlist. He was on deployment with a year left in the Marine Corps. He said... You get categorized, as they call them, short timers. We were a whole separate category. You would still be with the platoon, but it's like you were different, you were treated different, you were segregated. The story of his physical separation and shift in treatment signifies his realization that he was no longer a part of the in group. Other stories also showed a shift from a previously existing primary group relationship to a secondary group relationship. This further shift of of group relationships is significant as they prepare to cross through the threshold of military life into civilian life. Reintegration into life as a civilian was the last phase I saw depicted in these veteran stories. During this phase, the person often reflects on on their decision to get out of the military as they try to assimilate to not only a new environment, but also to a new identity. Chuck is trying to make sense of his new identity when he talks about the common phrase, once a Marine, always a Marine. You don't, feel, <clears throat> you don't feel that when you're with your unit, when you're getting out. It's like, who am I now? I'm nobody, I'm Chuck, I'm getting out. I'm not a sergeant, I'm just like everybody else. The stories they told me about their transition experience are also a part of this reintegration period. As Bruce Jackson points out in the stories people tell, it is the stories that take the disorderly clutter of life and turn it into something that makes sense. After listening to these veteran stories, I found myself being able to relate relate to, to all of them despite our different branches of service and deployments. Joseph told me in the opening of his story that his transition experience was unique, and I'm sure it was unique to his situation. One person's experience being unique is not what intrigued me about these stories, but rather how similar all of our stories really were, mine included. This liminal space between being in the military and being out of the military is actually a gradual shift in identity, During this gradual shift, veterans are integrating the knowledge from their military experience into a new life, new environment, and new social norms. There is so much to learn about the transition transition experiences of military members. Much like the stories we tell, I use these four phases to make sense out of something that's really quite messy. Each of these phases overlaps and intersects within each of their stories. The continuum of events, emotions, and ideas described in these stories are still at work today, as I imagine they will be for many years to come. An experience like serving in the military during a time of war is something that changes a person forever. Some people see it in better grades, shorter haircuts, lost friends, nightmares, straighter posture, or simply a different nostalgia on the Fourth of July. The common link between all service members is that we will have to transition sometime. Whether a service member transitions after 30 years or four, I suspect they will find themselves trying to make sense of their transition with a story. When they tell that story, I suspect they'll tell it much in the same way these four veterans have, in four phases, indecision, distrust, disconnection, and reintegration. Thank you. Any questions? You did seven years. You were on your second investment. Uh, I was extended for 18 months. Um, So was everybody on their initial investment? Mm, Yes.
4: Like is this something you've seen people trying to evolve for themselves, or something that's emerging,
10: or something that would be helpful or not? Um, you know, I've not so much with the people that I interviewed. I, I, I really, uh, I didn't get into too much of the, <coughs> too much of that aspect with them. But talking to other friends who did transition, they, uh, you know, their families threw them big parties. I'm, as I'm sure most m- most of the people have parties for them when they come back. <coughs> but there's there's real no set ritual that I know of that exists for people transitioning out of the military. I mean, it's basically, you know, you're here one day and then you're back home the next. It's like, good luck, a pat on the back, and here's your (laughs) DD-214.
2: And then beyond that, to kind of go through this process that uh, really doesn't have this, this finished place. I mean, it, it really is open-ended and one of the things that we talked about was that that these phases that he's identified only really represent this sort of initial part of Publishing a little bit here in this context, but I think it really is sort of a struggle because it's never really over. It's never really over in the
10: way that the services would like to say that it's over. Yeah, and and one thing to say on that there is a, a great ritual coming in, but it seems like the ritual that's set in place, at least for the military side, not for the members separating it seems to be pretty set in stone. like, uh, And it seems to be kind of getting people to second-guess their decision to get out. Like, well, if you're going to get out, you're just going to be left alone. You know, and it, there's a lot of great social pressure, not only from people who you've been taking orders for for years, but, uh, you know, from guys who you thought you were, fr- you were friends with for years, and then all of a sudden, you know, they don't even want to be associated with you because it could be detrimental to their careers, so it's pretty it's pretty profound that, that that actually happens you know, the mass separation like that
3: <coughs> so that dynamic then if you see a, a common theme in the post-it talk in this project or, or generally is a feeling of some, somewhat of alienation even a sort of diminishment of your loyalty something that you previously you sort of have out of there about the small decisions out and the, the opposition that happens after that like, does it, that change
10: Yeah, definitely. Uh, a, a lot of the people I asked them a question. Uh, well, after experiencing this, did you feel like you know your time that you served wasn't wasn't worth anything? Like suddenly, all that time, all that energy, you know, you you put in all this blood, sweat, and tears. You've deployed, fought for your country, you lived up to your end of the bargain, and then since you're going to get out, since you're not going to stay in and retire, uh, a lot of people did say initially they felt like it was for it was for not, but. Once they got out and they got back into the civilian world, so to speak, uh, they realized the true value of their service and they're able to regain some sort of self confidence in their time that they serve. So it's a great question. Yeah.
2: Is um, relevant. Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: how many are doing budgets total? These seven? Six? These are just seven.